1 Samuel chapter 16, and we'll read the first 13 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Congregation of Jesus Christ, most of us don't typically take notice of our eyesight until it starts to fail us. Most of us take seeing for granted until our vision starts to deteriorate or leaves us completely. Some of us can't remember a time when our vision didn't need some sort of correcting. Others of us can remember how the teacher's notes on the board looked a little fuzzier week after week or how, how we had to hold the hymnal a little farther and farther away. Oftentimes, we notice that failing eyesight as we get older. In the, one of the most recent studies I could find, noted that 24 million Americans have cataracts. 2.7 million Americans suffer from glaucoma. 
Among those older people, people who are 40 years and older, 3.6 million of those people have 20-40 vision or worse. But the problems with eyesight aren't just among those of us whom are older. A recent study by the National Eye Institute found that 21% of preschool-aged children are farsighted. Another 4% of them are nearsighted, and 10% of them have astigmatism. It's the issue of seeing rightly, and it's one that many of us deal with. Without some sort of assistance, we simply can't see things as they really are. Our vision isn't clear. We don't see rightly. Here in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel is dealing with vision problems. We should be clear, of course, as we begin, that in the overall story, Samuel is most certainly a good guy. In fact, Samuel is a light in Israel at a time when light is hard to find. But in the passage that we read this evening, Samuel's usually spot-on vision is failing him. Samuel is looking at this situation and seeing it completely wrong. It starts right away at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1 with the Lord's rebuke. Samuel is mourning for Saul. Mourning because Saul's kingship has tanked. And of course, Samuel has been against this kingship ever since the beginning. Way back in chapter 8, Samuel tells the people when they want a king that it's only going to lead to problems, that becoming like the nations isn't the solution at all, that it's only going to lead to more problems. And Saul's kingship has proven Samuel right over and over again. Saul's kingship has been such a clear reminder that the kingship has failed, and Samuel is grieving it. Samuel is grieving the state of his country. He's grieving what the kingship has become. He's grieving Saul's demise. But Samuel's grief is out of place. How long will you mourn for Saul? The Lord wants to know. Can't you see? Can't you see that I've rejected Saul as king? Can't you see that I have different plans? Because Saul has failed. Can't you see? And so the Lord pulls Samuel up out of his grief and tells him to go and find Jesse in Bethlehem. That this Jesse of Bethlehem, one of his sons, is going to be the next king. But Samuel sees more problems. Because, as you and I well know, people do not give up their power easily. And Samuel knows that if he goes to appoint a new king while Saul is still on the throne, he will be in a world of trouble. God, don't you get it? If Saul hears that I'm going to anoint some new king, I'm done. I can't go on this trip to Bethlehem to find a new king because there's still an old king. Anoint a new king while Saul is in power. God, you must be kidding. No way. 
Graciously, the Lord seems to understand Samuel's plea, and so the Lord speaks again and tells Samuel to go take this trip under the pretense of offering a sacrifice. Rather than announcing with fanfare that a new king has come, the announcement will be much more quiet. God tells Samuel to use the sacrifice he must offer as an excuse to go find Jesse, as a means to go to Bethlehem. And then once he's in Bethlehem, then the new king will be anointed, all the while avoiding Saul's wrath. Do you see it now, Samuel? Do you see, the Lord says, in effect, that this must happen? That you have to go to Bethlehem because I have a plan here? Because I've rejected Saul as king and I'm moving this in a new direction? Don't worry about Saul, I'll take care of it. Samuel's warped vision, his seeing wrongly, keeps him from seeing how God is at work. All he can see is Saul. All he can see is the danger of a powerful king who's angry. All he can see is this world where power and might get their way by using whatever means it takes. All Samuel can see is Saul. Saul's failure, Saul's power, Saul's anger. But of course, Samuel's vision is far too nearsighted because it's not about Saul. It's not about Saul's kingship. It's not about his army. It's not about his might. It's not even about Samuel's loyalty to Saul. It's about what the Lord is doing. And so Samuel goes using this excuse of a sacrifice and he goes to Bethlehem. And when he gets there, the town elders are terrified because they think he's come to raise trouble. But Samuel assures them that he comes in peace and that he needs to offer this sacrifice and that Jesse and his sons will be the guests of honor. And as Jesse's sons start to walk in, Samuel is sure that he has spotted in Eliab the next king. After all, Eliab is the oldest. And he was tall, too, just like King Saul. In fact, we read one chapter later in 1 Samuel 17 that Eliab and Abinadab and Shema are great warriors. They're the ones who are going to follow Saul into battle against the Philistines. They are military heroes. They are the strapping, brave ones the Marines would feature on their television commercials. And of course, military heroes make great political leaders. Who better to lead Israel than these young men? But of course, as the story goes on, all of Jesse's sons are brought before Samuel only be, to be turned away by God. And Samuel starts to wonder what in the world is going on. Has this all been some sort of wild goose chase? Samuel certainly must be feeling a little sheepish here. Jesse's probably getting annoyed at how long this is all taking. And of course, the rejected sons can't see at all why they're not good enough. 
from everyone's perspective, not the least Samuel's. It seems like this whole process has gone completely off the rails. And of course, we as readers know what's happening. We can see that Samuel doesn't understand, that through the whole process, Samuel's not seeing it rightly, that he can't get past the way that things appear to him. He can't see that Saul's no longer in charge. He can't see that God's moving the kingship in a new direction. That the next king doesn't have to be the oldest or the tallest or the bravest of Jesse's sons. We can see in the text all the ways that Samuel has seen this incorrectly. But the problem is that Samuel can't see it that his vision is messed up. Of course, in our world today, much of the society and culture around us refuses to even recognize that it has a vision problem. This view of the world that's so nearsighted, that's terribly misaligned, is one that in so many ways our world shamelessly embraces so that our culture tells us that to truly be a man, you need to be violent and angry and cold and sexual. Or Victoria's Secret models are paraded in front of us as a pinnacle of a woman's sexuality, a clear distortion of God's purposes. Or you go to the movies and see a movie like A Bad Mom's Christmas or The Wolf of Wall Street, and you see a vision cast that glorifies a life of partying and drunkenness. The vision, the vision for how life is supposed to be, for how God is at work, has been so badly distorted in so many different ways that one wonders what sort of corrective surgery must be needed. But of course, the truth is that this vision problem isn't just an out there thing. It's not just the bad world that we are protected from. The truth is that Samuel's vision problem is one that plagues us too. The same nearsightedness that plagues us as we try and see God's world. When we look around, we can't see clearly at all. Because as we look around, it so often seems like things in our world, things in our lives, things in our churches are going so terribly wrong. That things are so hopelessly hopeless. And so we see or we experience addictions and we see nothing but despair and hopelessness. Or we find ourselves or those we love in broken, dysfunctional marriages or relationships and we see nothing but divorce and separation. Or we see decline in our churches and see nothing but failure and desperation. Or maybe our faulty vision shows up when we envy the church in town with the most members or the biggest budget. Or maybe our faulty vision shows up when we look around our high schools and see those who are athletic or smart or cool, and we treat them differently than those who aren't. Or maybe our faulty vision shows up when what we see as success is judged by our pocketbooks 
There are 401ks. Or maybe our faulty vision shows up when we put our kids' athletic careers ahead of their spiritual lives. Our faulty vision can show up in a thousand different ways, in a thousand different places. But the problem is real. The problem of seeing wrongly is the problem that Pastor Alex DeYoung writes about in his book, Dying for a Drink. DeYoung describes how for years he simply couldn't see that his drinking had developed into a full-blown addiction. He didn't have the eyes to see it. It's the problem Dr. Neil Plantinga talks about when he talks about how Christians so often can manipulate God and religion for their own purposes. The problem of seeing church as a way to make ourselves feel good or a way of seeing God as a way to bigger houses, or better jobs, or happier lives. It's the problem of seeing things wrongly. But yet, way back in 1 Samuel 16, just when Samuel's about ready to give up hope, Jesse remembers that David is back with the sheep. And so Samuel instructs Jesse to call for this young shepherd. In fact, they're not going to sit down and eat until he arrives. And of course, as you well know, David comes and arrives and is announced as the Lord's chosen one. But if you notice in the text, it's not David who announces that, it's not Samuel who announces that David will be the next king. In verse 12, it's not Samuel who speaks, it's the Lord who speaks. It's the Lord who says, rise and anoint him, he is the one. And if you look really closely, or we're paying very close attention to what we read, you'll see that this is the fourth time that the Lord Yahweh has spoken in the passage. And each time that the Lord speaks in the passage, he does so to correct Samuel's faulty vision. The Lord speaks for the first time to point out to Samuel that Saul's been rejected as king and so that he doesn't need to grieve anymore. The Lord speaks again to assure Samuel that God will protect him from Saul. The Lord speaks a third time to remind Samuel that he isn't concerned about whether this future king is tall enough to dunk or smart enough for Harvard, but is concerned about his heart. And now the Lord speaks for a fourth time, announcing that this young shepherd boy, the trailer of the family, is the chosen one, the one who will be the king of Israel. The Lord speaks. The Lord speaks, and every time he speaks, he does so to correct Samuel's vision. Each time the Lord speaks, and in essence, he's saying to Samuel, look, I know this is how you see things. But here's how they really are. I know that you see the world in this limited way, but let me show you what's really going on. And so the Lord takes Samuel's despair, Samuel's fear, Samuel's vanity, and he shows him a different path. Because the Lord's vision of reality is so much grander and so much broader than what Samuel could ever see. 
where Samuel sees nothing but despair and hopelessness, the Lord sees chances for new beginnings and redemption. Where Samuel sees grand visions of leadership and power and might, the Lord sees nothing but vanity and false power. Where Samuel can't see, the Lord sees clearly. Samuel, this is how things really are. Saul's in the past. He can't harm you anymore. I'm moving forward with a new king, and it's not about the tallest or the richest or the oldest or whatever else you might judge by. It's about the new king's heart, and David's heart is the one that I've chosen to work with. Samuel, try and see things as I see them. And that's the beauty of the story in 1 Samuel 16. The beauty of a story where God sees things in such wonderfully full ways. How God sees in Saul's failure the opportunity to begin a new line of kings. A line that will, of course, ultimately bring around the Messiah. God sees Samuel's Samuel's fear of Saul as petty, needless fear. Because, of course, the Lord knows that Saul has no real power. God sees past the tallest and the oldest and the most likely candidate to be king and sees instead to the young, insignificant David. Because in God's vision, no one is too small. The weak are just as strong as the powerful. The unlikely are chosen in place of the likely. The least deserving are raised up and given the seat of honor. It's that same vision that Jesus casts on the Sermon on the Mounts, where the lowly are exalted, where the undeserved are given riches beyond measure. It is, of course, a vision of grace. And it's that same vision of grace that God can cast for us today. It's important to note that this new way of seeing isn't something we can do for ourselves. Samuel was hopelessly stuck in his old way of seeing until the Lord intervened and spoke to him. We can't perform some sort of laser eye surgery on ourselves We'll continue seeing in the old, faulty, distorted ways unless God speaks to us. Unless God steps in to give us a new vision. And it's when God comes and starts to restore our sight that we start to see things more clearly. In a completely new way. Just like when a new pair of glasses makes those fuzzy road signs clearer, God steps in and shows us that this is what his world is like. Seeing as God sees can open us up to new realities. It can bring us up out of our fear, out of our vanity, out of our mourning. Seeing as God sees ushers us into a new way of seeing where God is king a new way of seeing where we see hope, where we see peace, where we see joy, where before we had only seen dead ends, we start to see new opportunities, where before we had only seen grief, we start to see peace and hope. 
But before we'd only seen guilt and condemnation, we start to see redemption and forgiveness. So that the vision that God can cast for us can be wonderfully refreshing and freeing in all sorts of ways. When we start to see that God can move in unexpected ways and unexpected people, our point of view can shift so dramatically so that now our failed attempts at evangelism start to look a lot less like failure and a lot more like seed planting. Rather than envying the biggest churches or the most dynamic preachers, we start to appreciate how God is working in our midst. Instead of seeing the person down the pew as lazy or annoying or arrogant, we see him or her as a brother or sister of God. Instead of seeing our pocketbooks as the measure of our success and worth, we start to see that we are loved as God's children. We start to look at people of different color or different background, not with fear and mistrust, but with love and compassion. We start to see a new world, a new creation. God's way of seeing was displayed ever so clearly in West Nickel Mines High School, or West Nickel Mines School in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, October 2, 2006. Charles Roberts opened fire on those young Amish schoolgirls that Monday morning, killing five of them. And the world saw death and evil at its absolute worst. But with this vision so godlike that it shocks, the Amish community spoke words of forgiveness, reconciliation, comfort. These families reached out to the killer's family with love and compassion in words and acts that shocked the nation, words that were most certainly spoken by God, even if they came through human mouths. And the Amish families saw opportunities for God's grace, for God's love to shine through even in the darkest hour where the world would have automatically responded with revenge and anger and hate, the Amish community took on God's eyes and saw the need for grace in the midst of all of it. It's seeing how God sees. It's seeing life in his kingdom, seeing a new reality that only God can call into existence. In 1 Samuel 16, God spoke and acted in the anointing of David to cast this new vision. The new way of seeing began in Bethlehem, in the shepherd boy of David. But God's new vision will become even clearer years later in that same town of Bethlehem. When Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem, they have a sort of excuse, just like Samuel, this excuse of the census, and they find their way to Bethlehem, and they give an even clearer picture of God's kingdom. 
That shepherd boy, David, shows us what God's kingdom can be like, but that picture will be made even clearer in the coming of the great shepherd. As God himself decides to enter our world, God's vision becomes even clearer as Jesus speaks about what it means to see as God sees. We begin to see things not as the world sees them, but as Jesus Christ sees them. And so in this Advent season, the opportunity for us is to catch sight of the vision. The opportunity is to look for the hope of the world, the hope of the nations in the Christ child born in Bethlehem. In this Advent season, we live in a world that tells us to look for hope in a host of different places. Hope we hear over and over again lies in better politics or in tax reform or in a better healthcare system. Peace lies in diplomatic relations or in a powerful military that will t- deter all violence. But all these visions for the world are so tame. The vision that Advent invites us into is one that is so much radically fuller and deeper. In Advent, we wait for a different hope. We look for a different kingdom. It's a hope where power takes, where power is given up rather than taken for itself. It's a hope, as we sang earlier tonight, that is poor and mean and lowly. It's a hope that doesn't take an army for itself or overthrow governments. But it's one that comes into the world for us. Advent invites us into a vision of reality where God decides that he is going to step in, that he is going to dwell with us. And so in this Advent season, God reminds us that his vision of the world is so completely different than we could ever imagine, so different that he is willing to come into the world to be Emmanuel, God with us. So in this Advent time, we wait to catch sight again of that vision. Samuel could only see things through his faulty vision, and we so often struggle with the same nearsightedness. But God has this radically deeper and fuller sight of how he's at work. It's a vision where shepherd boys are made into kings. It's a vision where killings are surrounded with hope and forgiveness rather than hatred and despair. It's a vision where God himself comes to be born in a stable as a baby boy show us precisely what his kingdom is like. It is a vision of grace, and it's ours to see. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.